Open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. We shall begin a history class of sacred history that counts. We've wasted many hours learning the history of this world that doesn't matter. You can't apply it. You can't use it. It doesn't matter if you remember it. But here's a history that does matter. You can apply it. And it's good for you to remember it. And it teaches us things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I speak of the acts of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not anything written in the Word of God that isn't to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And the acts of the apostles does that. It brings glory to Him by showing what His chosen men did in their lives following His resurrection and His ascension. The Acts of the Apostles is going to show us a church and churches that have the Holy Ghost poured on them in abundance so that they're spiritual churches. We're going to look. We want to be like these churches. There's no church on earth that we've ever seen that we want to be like. And God hasn't ever told us to look for any church on earth that we want to be like. We want to see in the Acts of the Apostles the Spirit fill men, change men, and make churches that we want to pattern ourselves after. And we're going to learn about that in this book. 28 chapters long. I'm going to take a couple of extra sermons at the beginning to get us started. And then the Lord willing, we'll cover one chapter a week in our evening services studying the Acts of the Apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see spirit-filled men and women. We aren't going to see contemporary Christians. We're going to see spirit-filled Christians from the very beginning and how they conducted themselves and how serious they were and how sober they were about the things of God. And it's to these people we want to look as our pattern. And I hope that this study will be a blessing to you. I am not going to belabor any introduction to try to whet your appetite for it. We're just going to get into it and study it to see what the Lord has for us here. I first of all want to take Acts chapter 1. I will teach you Acts chapter 1 this morning and this evening. When we look at Acts chapter 1, and it's 26 verses, it can be easily divided into two halves. The second half begins at verse 15 and is the replacement of Judas Iscariot as one of the twelve. Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, went out and hung himself, and Peter, on on a day here in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, stands up and tells the rest of the apostles and those that were there with him, 120 in total, that they needed to fulfill the scriptures that had already been fulfilled with Judas killing himself and leaving his ministry, by, re- by voting a replacement, by choosing a replacement, which they did, which we'll study this evening, along with some other things. The first half of, the, of chapter 1, running down through the 14th verse, is the connection to the Gospel of Luke, the connection to the Gospel of Luke, and the setting that gets this book rolling by Luke bringing in several things for our understanding. So we want to look First, at the first half of chapter 1, which is the first 14 verses. Those 14 verses are broken up rather easily in the first five, which are a very definite connection to Luke, verses 6 and 7, which are a question of the disciples to Jesus, verse 8, which is his commission to them, verses 9 through 11, which is his bodily ascension into heaven, and verses 12 through 14, which is them patiently and gloriously waiting in Jerusalem to be endued with power from on high. But let's start by looking at the first five verses. And I pray the Lord to bless this to your hearts. We have already this morning sung praise to Jesus Christ. We've read a psalm of praise to Jesus Christ. I have read some words from Paul to Timothy about Jesus Christ. We are here in his name. You are in the kingdom of God right now. You are in the kingdom of Christ. Is he your king? Do you want to know more about him? 
Well, that king went and sat down on the right hand of God in heaven, but he had special men that he left on this earth to do a great work, and he prepared them gloriously. They were ordinary men, and this is something that ought to grip every one of our hearts, ordinary men that accomplished extraordinary things by the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Amen. It wasn't very many days hence from that fifth verse. The first thing I want to tell you is that Luke is the author of this book of Acts. We know that by seeing the fact that he's writing to Theophilus in verse 1. So let's come back to Luke and read the first four verses of Luke to make a connection and see why Luke did write. And I hope that we receive this teaching of Acts in the same spirit that Luke wrote it by the inspiration of God 2,000 years ago. Luke chapter 1, the first four verses I'll read to you. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And that's why I want to preach Acts to you, that the things most surely believed among us, they are not sort of believed, they're not sometimes believed, they're not weakly believed, they're most surely believed among us, for you to know the certainty of those things. And Luke especially by the blessing of the Holy Ghost, had perfect understanding of all these things. But now that's when he wrote the gospel, because he was an eyewitness of the Word of God, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we come over to Acts, not only was he an eyewitness of Jesus Christ leading up to the book of Acts, but he was a personal companion of the Apostle Paul. And when you could be a personal companion of Paul, that gave you insight into the things of the New Testament like no other teacher could possibly give you. Because Paul had been given so much understanding himself. Look at Colossians chapter 4, just to let's find Luke in a couple of places in our New Testaments. Colossians chapter 4. Luke is the author of Acts. He wrote a gospel account of Jesus And all that Jesus did up until the day he went back to heaven. And he wrote that to Theophilus. And then he wrote to Theophilus, Acts of the Apostles of 28 chapters, showing Theophilus what the apostles of Jesus did after Jesus went to heaven. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul writing to that church said, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now, for Paul to write this church and say, Luke greets you, that means Luke was with Paul and well-known. But he was there with Paul. That's why Paul is saying he greets you also. Turning back to Acts, look at chapter 16. I want to show you how close of a companion Luke was with Paul. So that they traveled together. So that when Luke writes the things that we read in the Acts of the Apostles, he is writing as an eyewitness observer. 
This is, we accomplish this in the same way we look at the book of Job and find that it was written by Elihu. There's two verses that prove that Job was written by Elihu in the middle of chapter 32. I'm not going to chase that rabbit. If you want to find out who wrote the book of Job, go read Job 32 and see where Elihu is speaking in the first person. And then when he leaves the first person, you can tell that it's Elihu that wrote that book. But that's another chase for another time. It's one of those wonderful little excursions that you can make with one of the modern Bibles of our day beside you, seeing that they have put all of chapter 32 in quotation marks and stolen who actually wrote it and who actually had the book of Job figured out. And it was Elihu. But let's come back to Acts 16. Sorry about that. Acts 16, a vision appears to Paul in the night in verse 9, and a man of Macedonia said, Come over and help us. And look at verse 10. And after he had seen the vision, who saw the vision? Paul. Paul. After he had seen the vision, immediately we. Who's the we? Paul and Luke, at least, and a few others. Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Luke was a preacher of the gospel along with the Apostle Paul. And from 16 to the end of the book, you're going to find that plural first-person pronouns used over and over again as Luke is right there, arm-in-arm, with the Apostle Paul. Over and over. But I just wanted to give you one. Um, you'll see Many times, from here to the end of the book, they are almost inseparable. Now, this book is written to Theophilus. What a neat name. I hope that you can look at that name, Theophilus, and figure it out without even looking at a dictionary. If we've got Theo starting this word, what does that mean? God. We know that because we have an English word, theology, which is the science of God or the knowledge of God. And then we've got the second half of his name being Philus. And we've got a city in our country called the city of brotherly love, and that city is Philadelphia. And so we put Theo and Philus together, and we've got either God is love or beloved of God. It's so simple. You can see that without using any dictionary. But that's not that important. He was a special man with a special name. And he was a man of rank. He was one of the few men that God has chosen that was of noble station in life. How do we know he was noble? Because in Luke chapter 1, the first four verses, Luke addressed him as most excellent Theophilus. And if you will go into the book of Acts and find where most excellent Theophilus where the words most excellent are used to describe a man, it's for Felix. And you'll see him being addressed by the captain of the guard as he sends Paul to him, oh, most excellent. And so we have it here that Theophilus was a man of rank who had been converted. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Luke 1 told us that. Luke taught him all that Jesus did while Jesus was on earth. And now Luke is going to teach him in a very organized fashion. He calls it a treatise, a documentary of what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ did. Now, I hope that we can accept the fact that Luke wrote Acts in the same way he wrote Luke, because it's the same author and the same reader, and he wrote that we might know the certainty of these things. And Luke was a man given to detail. You can tell that by reading the Gospel of Luke and by reading Acts. We're going to read very small little details repeatedly. He was a doctor, the beloved physician. Physicians had better be detail conscious. Do you want to go to one that's not? That's just got a good idea of what he ought to do? And Luke gives us more than a good idea. Luke gives us details that I hope that you'll appreciate. Now we read, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. That is what the Gospel of Luke's 24 chapters are for, all that Jesus began to do until he was taken up, when he ascended. 
If you go to chapter 24 of Luke, the last few verses, we see the ascent of Jesus into heaven, and that marked the end of the Gospel of Luke. And then he takes up from here to go forward. But we've got a connection in these first few verses as Luke ties the two letters together. So he says that after he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. We want to notice that this Acts of the Apostles, as it's titled in your Bibles, is truly the Acts of the Apostles. That's what the second verse tells us. Men whom he had chosen. He gave commandments to them before he went to heaven. Because when Jesus Christ went to heaven, sat down the right hand of God, he had left some very special men here. They weren't special in themselves. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were people that even the Bible doesn't tell us about. Some of them we don't even know anything about, except their name, and that they were chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to be one of his twelve. But they accomplished extraordinary things. And he commanded these men certain things before he left. We don't want to forget, as we study the book of Acts, that the church of Jesus Christ, the churches, plural of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, has a foundation made up of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Jesus being the chief cornerstone, but the rest of those stones in the foundation were men chosen before of God called apostles. We're going to get their names in a list this evening in verse 13. But they were ordinary men that God chose and blessed to do extraordinary things for Him, and they are the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. They had the highest gift. When we read in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus Christ went to heaven and gave gifts to the church, and He gave some apostles... In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, he hath set in the church first apostles. That was the highest gift in the New Testament. And we should put it in its proper place. These men were given an office and given ability that's never been touched by men following them. And they did things that men following them could never do, which is going to become important in just a few minutes. Let's not forget their importance as the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ. Now we read in verse 3, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days. The church of Jesus Christ is built on the gospel message that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and is the Savior and Judge. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of paramount importance. And so we read right off the bat that before Jesus went to heaven, He gave His disciples many infallible proofs that He had been resurrected from the dead. And that's one of the qualifications to be an apostle. You had to have seen with your own eyes the Lord Jesus after his death and burial and resurrection, so that you could say, I was there, I saw him, I touched him, I ate and drank with him, I heard him speak. And and when you would say those words after you had healed everyone that was sick in that town, there was a high degree of integrity behind your message to those whom God had given a believing heart. It's amazing that anyone could deny these men. Don't you wonder yourselves how anyone could deny the message of the apostles when they would heal the dead, I mean, heal the sick, raise the dead, speak in any language that they needed to speak in, and preach a message, and and it wasn't believed, even though they had corroborating witnesses all over. But he appeared to them for 40 days, according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, And he showed himself alive to them after his passion by many infallible proofs. See, this is Luke. This is the way Luke writes. Many infallible proofs. This is a treatise, O Theophilus, and I'm going to document exactly the certainty of the gospel that you've been taught and that you've believed. These are the things most surely 
believed among us. And I hope that you can see that foundation for the writings of these two books of the Bible and all the books of the Bible are to say the same thing. We should never equivocate, question, doubt, or talk weekly about the Word of God. It is an established fact, every word of it. It is certain. And of the things surely believed among us. This is the faith once delivered to the saints that we are to earnestly contend for. Even in Paul's day, in the church of Corinth, there were men that were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said, How are some of you saying that Christ is not risen from the dead? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Even in Paul's day. And there's more in our day. The great German theologians and philosophers have come out with over the last 200 years saying God is dead. Well, I want to tell you something. Jesus Christ isn't dead. He's sitting alive and he's very healthy at the right hand of God Almighty. And I hope you love him this morning. And I don't say those words lightly. Look at Acts chapter 10, and let's see another indication of his infallible proofs that he gave of his resurrection. Remember, the Jews had hoped that by crucifying Jesus Christ and getting him buried, they could get rid of him. And when he was risen from the dead, and the keepers that Pilate had appointed to guard that tomb came to those priests and said, We don't really know how to tell you this, but during the night, a great power came, and the whole place began to shake, and we were shaken into immobility, and when we came to, he was gone. Now, I I hope you love him this morning. And those priests said, after they gave them a large sum of money, say that his disciples came and stole his body away. And so that was commonly believed among the Jews. But I want to tell you that the disciples saw him later for 40 days and they went forth and taught the truth in the matter that Jesus Christ was indeed risen from the dead and we even know what happened to the keepers. The great power of God was there to raise Jesus Christ up from the dead. And he did it. And moved away that stone so that when the women came there, the stone was gone because there had been a great earthquake. Tremendous power as Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Here's what Peter said to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Verse 39, we are witnesses. This is how apostles could preach. There's never been witnesses except the apostles and those that were directly involved in their ministries. You cannot be a witness for Jesus Christ. You never witnessed him. These are witnesses. If you went to court, when they're looking for an eyewitness and stood up and said, yeah, I read something about this event, what is that? The court's going to laugh you out. You're not an eyewitness. You're not a witness. A witness is someone who has seen it. Here's how Peter could speak. I can't speak this way and neither can you. Acts chapter 10, verse 39, we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Those are witnesses. And everyone today, the rest of the churches in this county, want to put a burden on their membership that they're supposed to be witnesses. Well, I, I agree that we should be able to give an answer to men who ask us of the hope that's within us and to be able to give a Bible reason for the things that we do. But there's no way you can be a witness of Jesus Christ in the way the Bible uses that word. They witnessed him. Jesus showed himself openly and they saw. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the Apostle Paul testifies about Jesus Christ showing himself openly. 
Luke is laying down a foundation with Theophilus that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a certain event because there were many infallible proofs. And we're just looking through the rest of Scripture for a few of the examples of that. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 where he is defending the resurrection. He said that I delivered, verse 3, I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. And that little verse there, number eight, as of one born out of due time is important because Paul became the greatest apostle because he was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ because Jesus appeared to him, as this passage tells us. He spoke to them. If we go to Matthew and Mark and Luke we, and John, we can see Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, spoke. Now, if they had just seen a spirit moving about, they might be able to question whether it was truly Jesus Christ. But he spoke to them. That's one of the many infallible proofs. He showed himself to their eyes. They saw him. Mary came back. Then, the, then Peter and John came back, the other disciples saying, and we're supposed to meet him in Galilee. And he appeared in the room with the doors closed, and he stood there, and he told them, look at me. These are my wounds. Look at me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone and blood like this. Look at me. He appeared to them visually. He spoke to them so that they could hear him audibly. It wasn't just an apparition. They touched him. Look at Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. In John chapter 20, when Mary sees Jesus in the, in the garden around the tomb, and he makes himself known to her, and she calls him Rabboni, which is to say master, he says, touch me not. Don't be under the misconception that that means Jesus was in some special condition and she wasn't allowed to touch him. What he was saying there simply was, don't hold on to me now and hold me up and hold yourself up. Get back and tell the disciples that I'm risen from the dead. I haven't ascended to our Father and to our God yet. I'm still here. I'm not going back yet. I will appear to all the disciples. Go tell them. Don't hold on to me right now. That's what's meant by those words. The words, touch me not, do not mean that he couldn't be touched because they touched him. Matthew 28 and verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, these are the women, behold, Jesus meant them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. See, there they are holding him by his feet. And the other account would be, Let go, touch me not, go and tell my disciples. It wasn't that he was in, his body was in some condition between resurrection and ascension that couldn't be touched. Right. Now I had that, I had that poor understanding of that passage for a long time when I was younger. When I'd read the words, touch me not, I am not yet ascended to my father and I, I would make the connection. Well, he must, his body must have been in some intermediate state between glorification and resurrection, and therefore she wasn't supposed to touch him. That is not the case at all. He is simply saying, I haven't gone back yet. I'm still here. Go tell the disciples. Just don't make this reunion here in the garden last longer than it should. Go tell them. Spread the news. I'm still here, and I want to see them. So they touched him. Let's go to John chapter 20. And see that he showed them his wounds. Many infallible proofs Jesus gave that he was indeed resurrected from the dead. And those men went out with that message and preached that message worldwide to every creature. And it's the message we believe today. And we should be thankful that God chose them and they obeyed him 
in spreading that gospel far and wide that they had indeed seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19 of John 20. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. There's an importance in seeing him. They had heard, but they wanted to see. Now, there was one disciple that wasn't there. What was his name? Thomas. Thomas. Wasn't there when they saw Jesus Christ. And so we call him Doubting Thomas, because he said, even though he had ten apostles confirming that Jesus was there with his wounds, he said, unless I get to stick my fingers in the holes in his hands and my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. Well, eight days later, right here, Jesus appeared again with the doors being shut. I like that. Little thing, but it's a detail that I like. The doors were shut and Jesus appeared there. And he confronted Thomas. It's here in John chapter 20, verse 27. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Amen. Amen. But brethren, you can be better than Thomas. Can you say, My Lord and my God, this morning, having not seen him? You are more blessed, according to the words of the Savior in John chapter 20. Because our faith is grounded on the fact that there were 12 men who saw him, heard him, ate with him, touched him, and they went out and preached the message that he was risen from the dead, backing it up with signs and wonders. That's why we believe it. And God has put in our heart a love of the truth that matches up with that. We have not seen him, and yet we believe. And I hope this morning in our hearts, we can address him as my Lord and my God, as we think of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now we've already read in Acts chapter 10 that they ate and drank with him. We've seen that he showed them many proofs. Let's look at John chapter 20 and verse 30, just to see that there were many. And John writes, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Notice, John says, these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not that he was the Christ, so we're not talking about events before his death, We're talking about death events after his resurrection to confirm that Jesus is the Christ. Many things that aren't written, but these should be enough, is what the apostle says for you to believe that he is indeed the Son of God. Let's come back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Verse 3 has told us that he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days. Now he gave them some commandments. Verse 2 tells us that, that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto those apostles whom he had chosen. And the main commandment that we have right here is in verses 4 and 5, that they should not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father that you have heard from me, John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized by the Holy Ghost. So they are commanded to stay in Jerusalem until they receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. The Lord wanted to pour out His Spirit there in the city of Jerusalem, and He wanted them to stay there, and they did, which we'll see as we get further into chapter 1. But in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, Jesus had taught His apostles that it is expedient for you that I go away. But if I go away, I am going to send the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, and He'll abide with you forever. 
And the Holy Ghost will stir up your memories to remember everything that I've taught you. Now, brethren, at this point, they couldn't remember that he was to die and, and rise from the dead after three days and three nights. You can read that in John chapter 20 and verse, verse 9. It says, For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He had talked about it all the way along. All the way along, the three and a half years, our Lord had described his death and his resurrection, whether he was using figurative terms or plain terms. But they didn't understand. But the Holy Ghost would come upon them in such a powerful way, he would bring back to their remembrance everything they had been taught. Now, when you go read that verse, don't you stumble and think that that's a promise that applies to you. If it's a promise that applies to you, I want you up here tonight so that I can have your chair. That was apostolic promise. Those special men whom he had chosen. Remember, John 14, 15, 16, 17 were not given to a large crowd. That was a small, intimate, private sermon, teaching, given to them between the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, the Last Supper is in John 13. 14, 15, 16, and 17 are commandments and words of encouragement and promises given just to the Twelve. That bringing all things to your remembrance. I wish all things would come to my remembrance sometimes. That's why we have Bible computer programs and Strong's Concordance and Nave's Topical Bible and the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge because they don't all come to my remembrance. But they did to the apostles when the Holy Ghost came on them. I'm, I'm referring some of these verses to you rather than turning them to you because I'm confident that you know of them. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 3 to read about this, these baptisms. Luke writes to Theophilus and says some words of Jesus Christ that John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. There's two baptisms, and when we get over here to look at John, we see three. Matthew chapter 3, John is baptizing in the Jordan River. And we read in verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. And he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's how men preach when they're called of God. That is not the gentlest, most effeminate words you've ever heard. That's John the Baptist. Three baptisms, however. John's baptism of water, Jesus Christ baptizing with the Holy Ghost, and Jesus Christ baptizing with fire. Now, brethren, a little cloven tongue that's going to appear on the disciples' heads in Acts chapter 2 is not a baptism of fire. For several reasons, I hope that they're plain to you. First, a little cloven tongue of fire on a head is not a baptism. Or we should be known as the Presbyterian Church of Greenville. Second of all, that first one is is so obvious, but the second, the one we really want to get, and it's our second rule of Bible study, is the context. Look what John's talking about. He mentions fire in verse 10, and he mentions fire in verse 12. And what kind of fire is it? It's the fires of judgment. And it's an exact fulfillment of what the last two chapters of your Old Testament taught. Malachi 3 
and Malachi 4, Malachi 3, Behold, I send a messenger before thy face. He shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, is going to come. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. Malachi chapter 4. The day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts. Malachi chapter 4. So there's a baptism of fire that took place when Jesus Christ baptized the Jewish nation, these Pharisees, with the fire of judgment in destroying the city of Jerusalem. John was baptizing with water, showing the proof and the evidence that they were repenting of their sins. But Jesus, in between those, would have a would give a baptism of the Holy Ghost. And that's that promise he had given in John 14 and 16, that he would pour out the Holy Ghost. And when we get to Acts chapter 2, that's exactly the words that are used to describe it. That God would pour. Now, can we call pouring a baptism? This is scary. Because if we, if we can't call pouring an immersion, then what about those people that pour a little water? Like the Catholics. The Catholics pour. They pour a little bit of water in the sign of a cross on the forehead. Well, let me, let me tell you something. If I pour water over you enough to drown you and cover you, have you been immersed? Even though the water got there by pouring? Yes. If you're in your house and the Lord sends rain, which is sprinkling, and there's enough of it that it fills your house and you drown, you've been immersed also. You say, do you have a Bible example of that? Of course. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul said that the Israelites in the wilderness were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. When they walked through the Red Sea, the water was beside them, and the water was over them because it says they went through the sea and that was called a baptism because it completely covered them. They were out of sight. The water covered them. And the Lord was going to pour, pour out the Holy Spirit in such a pouring that it would cover and fill. Did it fill the house that they were in? Yeah. If you're in a house and I fill it with water, have you been immersed? Yep. Have you been baptized? Yes, it's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. The house they were in was filled. It was indeed a baptism. Even though the Spirit itself got there under the figure of speech of a pouring, because it was poured out from heaven, because Jesus Christ was given the Holy Ghost from His Father, and He in turn poured it out on His disciples. His disciples already had the Holy Ghost in a measure, because I read in John chapter 20 that Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. So they got some there. But they're still confused. We're going to see that when we get to the question they ask. But they hadn't been given yet that pouring of the Holy Spirit. They'd been given some so that some scriptures were coming to their minds about His resurrection. For instance, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it. When he first uttered those words, no one understood them. He was speaking of his body. The Jews thought he was talking about the temple that took 46 years to construct, so they accused him of blasphemy, and they remembered that blasphemous statement three and a half years later when he was on trial. But do you know what the Bible tells us? After Jesus breathed on them the Spirit, then they remembered that, that his statement about the destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up Oh, there's the fulfillment. God opened their eyes with His Spirit. And you're going to see Peter, as we get farther into Acts chapter 1, operating differently than he had before. Because God the Holy Spirit is going to be guiding him into how and why they should replace Judas Iscariot. Right. Which is different than Peter had functioned before. The Lord showed him that by his 
by the Spirit, but it wasn't the baptism that was to come in Jerusalem in a few days. Acts chapter 1 and verse 5 tells us. Let's come back to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 3, we are told that Jesus Christ, during that 40 days, when he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, spoke to them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, brethren, I don't have time to chase all that I would like to in the kingdom of God. That deserves several sermons in itself. But the kingdom of God is not, is not a physical Jewish kingdom to be established after Christ's coming over there on that sand called Palestine. The kingdom of God is something that John said is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said when he cast out devils, if I, by the Spirit of God, am casting out devils, then no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. We read in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. That's the Moses system. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Now, how can you press into something that doesn't exist? It was there. Daniel had prophesied in Daniel 2.44 that in the days of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire has been long gone, in the days of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor will it ever be given to other people. Remember, Babylon was given to the Medes. The Medes was given to the Persians. The Persians was given to the Greeks. The Greeks were given to the Romans. But Jesus Christ's kingdom would never be given away because it's permanent and forever. And you're in it. And Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. The one and only potentate. And we are not waiting for some Jewish fable of some little ridiculous, blasphemous kingdom in the Middle East on sand. Jesus Christ is too great for that. That little patch of sand over there couldn't hold His glory. He's in heaven. And He's going to have to have a new heaven and a new earth to absorb all of His glory so that He can show it to us in perfect righteousness. C.I. Schofield and other men who have written Bibles and books have brought this lie upon our nation where most people believe the kingdom of God is something that isn't even here yet. Jesus isn't a king. Jesus isn't reigning. Jesus isn't on his throne because he's going to sit on some throne over there in that little ugly city called Jerusalem. Listen, he is in Jerusalem. And it's not ugly and it's not small. It's beautiful and it's glorified and it's in heaven and we're part of it. It's a spiritual city. Schofield is so confused. He believes that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. That is so ridiculous. To look in your New Testaments and to read them, and to see in one gospel it's called the kingdom of God. You go to another gospel, the very same event, it's called the kingdom of heaven. Or you go to Matthew 19, where Jesus in one sentence would use them both about the same thing. You say, can I see that? Matthew 19. Matthew 19, Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24. It's two sentences, but notice it's one, it's one argument, one thought. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Matthew 19, 23, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Amen. The very same thing. The difficulty of rich men getting into Christ's kingdom. He calls it a kingdom of heaven. He calls it a kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus Christ told the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 21, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a people bringing forth the fruits thereof. And that's us, brethren, the Gentiles. And it's the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ that quickly, after the first few chapters of Acts, turn to the Gentiles, and especially with Paul's work, bring us the kingdom and the gospel of the grace of God. There's so much more that could be said on that. Look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. 
someone will say, okay, I'll grant you what you've said so far, that there is a spiritual kingdom and Jesus is reigning spiritually, but the kingdom hasn't come in power yet. And we're waiting for that day after his coming when the kingdom of God will come in power. Well, let's look at Mark 9 and verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, said unto them, Mark 9, 1, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Let them quibble. Let them go to their seminaries and flatter one another into total ignorance, superstition, on the doctrine of the New Testament. The Bible has declared itself plainly. The God of heaven would set up a kingdom. Now, if the God of heaven sets up a kingdom, that kingdom would be called the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Is that difficult for you to grasp? No. And that's exactly the words from Daniel 2.44, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom. And that kingdom was there, and men were pressing into it. And Jesus proved that it was there by casting out devils with the finger of God. And this verse says that there were men living in the time of Jesus who would live long enough to see the kingdom of God come with power. And when did the kingdom of God come with power? Well, there was some power in the day of Pentecost because Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. But there was power in the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's what's under consideration here because Jesus would not have used the word, some of you shall still be alive if he was talking about Pentecost, which was only a few months away. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem where Jesus Christ came and showed that he was indeed a king. And he miserably destroyed the men that had crucified him and burned up their city. That's the parable of Matthew chapter 21. And that was the kingdom of God coming in power. And the gospel of the kingdom had already been preached in the whole world in the 40 years leading up to that event. So that the whole world was told in advance, wait and see what is going to happen to Jerusalem because it is the proof that your Jesus Christ, your Savior, is a king. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. Then shall the end come. Amen. The end of what? The end of the Jewish nation. Because Jesus said all these things shall come to pass on this generation. He spoke of them, of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see those men preaching the kingdom of God and men being baptized and entering it. Brethren, you are in the kingdom of God this morning. If you have believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you've been baptized in His name, repented of your sins, and you want to obey Him, you are a citizen of that kingdom. That is what we read in Psalm 24. I didn't pick Psalm 24 with lots. What's the character of those that will ascend into the holy hill of God? It was in Psalm 24. If you have that character and you've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of his kingdom. Amen. The world can't see it, but we see it. Right. And we're thankful for it. Amen. They can't see our king, but they're going to. Yeah. Because of the verse I began the day with, which in his times he shall show. We already know he's the king of kings. But he's going to show it. Yes. That he's the one and only potentate. Amen. Brethren, I've taught you before, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that that kingdom we now have, we've received a kingdom which cannot be moved. It's the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of heaven. It'll never be moved. And we're to worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear right. in that kingdom. Amen. Now the disciples in verses 6 and 7 of Acts chapter 1, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That is evidence right there that they didn't have much of the Holy Spirit. Because they're totally confused. They're as confused as the Pharisees were, thinking that the kingdom of God was going to be a restoration of the nation of Israel to earthly preeminence. Jesus doesn't even answer their question. He just tells them, times and seasons are none of your business. They're my business. 
Verse 7, he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his power. They're going to be corrected real quick as soon as they get the Holy Ghost a few days hence. And you'll be able to see by their teaching that they fully understand that the kingdom is spiritual, and in a few chapters that even Gentiles belong in the kingdom when they have the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. At this point, they are still in darkness. And so they ask their question. We don't have to wonder about this. We are the Israel of God. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. There is no kingdom for physical Israel. The kingdom of God is for spiritual Israel. And we're part of it. And God has made us part of it. Now, brethren, we come to verse 8. And I know what time it is. Just bear with me. I want to cover verse 8 or we're in deep trouble for tonight. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Luke has told Theophilus, Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they be given power from on high, a baptism of the Holy Ghost. The disciples asked their question in in verse 6, get it answered in verse 7 by being told, The times of anything are none of their business. The times, plural, and the seasons, plural, are the Lord's business. But he tells them what they should be thinking about. And it's verse 8. But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Brethren, that verse right there is the Great Commission. That is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's in Matthew, it's Mark 16, 15 and 16. It's in Luke 24. This is what's called the Great Commission. Great Commission, the Great Commission was Jesus Christ charging his apostles to preach the gospel worldwide. Jews and Gentiles everywhere. Most men today, when I say most, I mean 101%, believe that the Great Commission still applies to the church of Jesus Christ, and we're still responsible for it. And you need to be established in the fact that it was given to special men, and those special men fulfilled it. And they fulfilled it completely. The commission was given to the eleven. If you go to Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, or Acts chapter 1, you say, where are the eleven here? We'll read verse 13, he'll give you their names. There's eleven. This commission was given to eleven. Remember, there are 11 because one's hung himself. This commission was given to the apostles. Jesus gave it to them. And this commission was based upon power. Not based upon money raising. Not based upon mission boards. Not based upon deputation work. Not based upon seminaries. Not based upon learning foreign languages in language school. It was based upon power. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. How in the world are you going to send fishermen out to preach the gospel worldwide unless Jesus Christ gives them power? And he did give them power. He gave them great power. And this verse right here tells us, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. These men were timid. They were weak. They were ignorant. They had poor memories. They spoke in such a unique Galilean dialect that when Peter was standing before a little fire, a little girl could pick up the fact that he was a Galilean. That isn't much power over his vocal cords. But he was going to be given power. And you'll be witnesses. And remember what I've already taught you about witnesses. I can show you in many places, Luke 24, ye are witnesses of these things. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. We can't be a witness. We haven't seen them. It's so wonderful what they did for us. Amen. And it's so wonderful that God would have mercy upon us and reach down into our little assembly and show us something that no one else sees. And it's so simple. The Great Commission was fulfilled 1930 years ago. And it's not our responsibility. We have a big enough responsibility to do the things He has left us right. in the epistles of the New Testament. 
Look at Mark 16. Mark 16, this great commission. Mark 16. Now, brethren, if you want to read the New American Standard Version or the New International Version, Mark 16 ends at verse 8. If you're going to listen to the Bible department at Bob Jones University, Mark 16 ends at verse 8. But we've got good stuff in verses 9 through 16 that we believe because it's corroborated by the rest of the New Testament and God has blessed this Bible with fruit and our faith knows it's the Word of God. If they can't see that, so be it. That's why there are often so many errors, thinking the kingdom of God is future and trying to apply the Great Commission to little 19-year-old freshmen. Anyway, back to Mark chapter 16. It doesn't matter whether you've heard Mark 16 quoted at Bob Jones University or not. It is not in the New American Standard Version, except in one great big parenthesis saying it doesn't belong here because it's not in the most ancient manuscripts. It's not in their favored two idolatrous manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. But we've got it. And you know what? It's got something good for you. Let's look at it. Verse 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Who's the them of verse 15? The 11 of verse 14. Very good. Verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Here is the power these men would, these 11 would have. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. There are five great sign and wonders, signs and wonders, given to the eleven to go out and confirm their word. Here were fishermen that were going to go out and preach that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead, and these signs would follow them that believe. This is the power of Acts 1.8. This is the power of Matthew 28 and verse 18, along with the Holy Ghost understanding that they were given. There's, you've never met a missionary or a pastor or an evangelist that can do any of these. That's right. And they could do them all. This is the power that goes with commission preaching. Not in 2,000 years has a man stood on this planet able to preach with commission authority, commission power, and in fulfillment of the commission. The apostles did it, because look at verses 19 and 20. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following, Amen and Amen. That is the word of the Lord. All you have to do is read the rest of the chapter. They will go in there and grab verse 15, and that's all they dare take. Bob Jones University cannot stand verse 16, because it says you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. They can't stand verses 17 and 18, because none of them have any gifts. They can't stand verses 19 and 20, because it states that it's been fulfilled. Right, man. And so they go in and get verse 15 and jerk it out of context and batter their congregations with it this morning. The apostles went and did it, brethren. They went and did it gloriously. Jesus had said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness, and then shall the end come. And he said that end would come on that generation, Matthew 24. That indeed happened. Jesus put a deadline on the preaching, the worldwide preaching of the gospel, and it was 70 A.D. It would be done before 70 A.D. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, we are told that the Romans' faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. We're told in Colossians chapter 1, verses 6 and 23, that the gospel of Jesus Christ had been preached to every creature under heaven. Why aren't those verses ever taught? You should be so thankful. Why do you see it? Why do I see it? It is by the grace of God that we see it. That he would open our eyes to see that the apostles did this work and that it's not ours. It is by the grace of God. 
why the enemies of Jesus Christ knew that they had preached in the whole world. They accused Paul of turning the world upside down. They accused Paul of this man who teacheth everywhere. And that was one of them. What do you think the other ten were doing? Retired on the job? I don't think so. They've been given great power. And they went forth in Colossae, Philippi. Guess what? There is no repetition of the Great Commission. It's never repeated again. It's never transferred to us. Instead, our duties are to be good fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, servants, masters, citizens, saints, brethren. Because that's a full-time job in itself. To walk in the Spirit and not to walk in the flesh. That's the job that the Lord has given to us. There's not a single verse transferring it anywhere in the New Testament. We are to convert our brethren. James 5, 19 and 20. Who depart from the truth and hold to an error. And by doing that we save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Our speech is to be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that we would know how to give an answer to every man. But nowhere are we charged with the commission. Brethren, we see in Acts chapter 1 that there were men chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ that he gave commandments to, told them to wait. And he said, I'm going to send power down from heaven on you in the city of Jerusalem, and it's going to change your lives forever. And you're going to go out and preach the gospel everywhere, and I'm going to give you power to perform signs and wonders, and you are going to establish and further the kingdom of God in this world. And they went and did it. And these are the acts of the apostles. If I go into Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 and use it for a sermon to see how many of you I can get to come forward to go into full-time Christian service, I haven't given you the acts of the apostles. I've given you a task that you can't do. But the message of the book of Acts is what the apostles did And we should be thankful to God for it and bless his holy name. And brethren, if you're a little confused in your mind, I want to tell you something. Because we don't apply the Great Commission to ourselves and to those around us, that doesn't mean that there's going to be a single soul lost. Because I want to tell you something about Jesus Christ, who sits as king. He said, I will lose none of them. None of them. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And moreover, those he did predestinate... He called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Past tense, the work is done. It's so sure in the purpose of Jesus Christ. He is king, he is savior, and he has sat down because he by himself has purged our sins. He is the second Adam, and by his obedience, he has forever made us righteous. We don't need someone bringing the Great Commission message to us. They couldn't do it anyway. We'd refuse it if they did, because Jesus has already saved us. And that's the gospel of the grace of God and the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word and your understanding of Acts chapter 1. Amen.